Amela Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Data is constantly flowing through a system, from telemetry data to data from IoT devices. As the amount of data increases, challenges emerge on how to process it. Holden Caro, engineer at Google, talked about how data can be processed and analyzed in batches or in streams. Holden explained the infrastructure needed to process data at scale and the fundamental performance improvements for these systems. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. I've used it for over a year and find it very helpful. There are 50,000 companies active on Blind. Check if yours is there and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com to download the app. Thank you. Holden Caro, open source big data developer advocate at Google, is joining us today. We're here at the Kirkland office. Holden, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Today we're going to be talking about big data and streaming. Big data never stops. Systems are constantly getting information from various sources like sensors, web sessions, and many things like this. Two ways in which it can be processed are in batches or in streams. Yeah. You can process it and analyze it that way. To understand this, I'd like to talk about some applications. For example, what would be an application that processes and analyzes data in batches? Sure. So there's a lot of different things that are much better in batch processing or are a lot easier to write. Um, some of the classic examples are a lot of machine learning algorithms are a lot easier to do in batch processing because we, we tend to end up with these things like gradient descent where you really, it's a lot easier to take an iterative many passes over the same pieces of data while increasing our model performance. Um, and so things like training recommender systems, Building machine learning models is a really common sort of batch processing approach. You also even see a lot of business reporting done in batch. But I think a lot of the business reporting stuff is moving from batch to streaming. I think also a lot of exploratory data analytics work tends to be done in batch. And that's because we don't really know what the questions are we're asking. And so it's not super important that we always have the freshest of data because we're just figuring out what exactly it is we need. And it's often cheaper to do that on batch data. But in some cases where the kinds of questions we're asking change very, very rapidly, you, you see those exploratory analytics happening on streaming data as well. K-SQL is a really interesting situation of, of powering sort of more analytics type workloads on, on streaming data. You said that business reporting is done in batch, but you're seeing the shift to streaming. What would be a reason why this is happening? So I, I think there's a few different reasons. One of them is that people have historically been okay with waiting a day, but as time goes on, people are just expecting more from their systems. The other part is we're also seeing a world where things are changing more rapidly, right? My reports get out of date more frequently. We see this 
with machine learning models as well. There are people who train their machine learning models in a streaming system. Um, it's just very hard to do well, and so um, that's why it happens less. But like you, you can see cases where like we might have reports about fraudulent accounts or stuff like that, and that could change very quickly throughout the course of a day, right? Waiting 24 hours to find out that like my fraud levels have increased or something like that is a substantial business impact, whereas being able to respond to it more rapidly, you know, we're able to address those those concerns in real time or take advantage of opportunities. Another example that I thought of is to identify cryptocurrency mining if you find out the next day and next thing you know your bill is millions of dollars. Right, yeah. If your security alerting is the day after, at that point it's, it's a little late, right? You're... Uh, other people have already run off with what they needed. So streaming is real-time, pretty much. Yeah, and, and for different people, real-time means different things, right? For some people, you know, if they're trading on a stock market or doing something like that, real-time is, is measured in milliseconds. For other people, real-time just means, like, anything under a minute, right? And that's pretty okay for a lot of situations, right? Not everything needs uh, sub-second response times. In the context of data analysis and processing what exactly does streaming mean? Sure. So we can think of streaming, I think one of the nicest ways to think of streaming, um, and it, it doesn't like 100% match to, to every streaming model, but comes from a lot of the sort of SQL-based streaming systems. And it's just you can think of this infinitely growing table over which I can have different types of analytics or different types of work, which is continuously updating as my table is growing with the new information. And this doesn't match everything, but if you're just getting started with sort of streaming analytics, I think it's a good mental model to sort of start with. So just to compare for batches, if we stick with this analogy of a SQL table, it's a big table, but it has a fixed size for now, Yeah. where streaming is just keeps growing and growing. Continuously growing, right. So in batch, we can think of our table updating once a day. And in streaming, it's updating as new things are coming in with like some minor stars like after each of those words that depend on your exact needs. But I find that really helpful for a starting point. If we are dealing with infinite data coming in, what are examples of things that we can compute with this data? Sure. We can compute aggregates over this data pretty easily. And so if I want to compute like a, a moving window of things, like if I'm interested in the last K events um, and I want to see what's happening, or if I want to see what my outliers are over this table and I might be getting new outliers produced constantly. If I even want to apply sort of my machine learning algorithms, which I trained in batch on streaming data, right? For example, if I have something to detect fraudulent accounts, it, it would be totally really easy compared to training in streaming to run my model in streaming and see its predictions uh, in real time. I see. So at the beginning, you did mention ML is common in batch processing, but you're also able to run a model in a stream. Yeah, you can definitely run a model in a stream. Yeah. You can train models in streams. People just don't do it as much because it's really expensive and hard, and it's not normally worth it because some latency tends to be okay there. You know, it, once again, if you're like in something like the stock market with an adversarial situation or like a spam filter, like your latency could be more challenging. And so then you may have to deal with this joy of training your models on streaming data. I see. What are some of the components of the infrastructure for processing and analyzing data in a stream? 
Sure. So there tends to be a message bus-like situation. And some common ones include things like PubSub or Kafka. And this is just a, a system which will sort of allow the data to come in because you have data coming from many different sources like your IoT devices or your tickers or some type of sensor or clicks coming through on your log. Um, and so you tend to have something like Kafka or PubSub. Then you tend to have a streaming engine. There's things like Dataflow, which is sort of a hosted service from Google. There's things like Spark Streaming, uh, Apache Spark Streaming. I should always use its full name when first referenced, uh, according to the ASF trademark guidelines, um, okay. which I am occasionally reminded of. Uh, but okay, Apache Spark, which has a streaming engine. Um, it actually has three different streaming engines inside of the same project, which is super confusing. Apache Flink, and there are so many more that I forget. Um, but Oh, and KSQL is, is another one, and Kafka Streams. And these things are the things which will do your analytics on the data that's coming in off of your system. Um, and sometimes those analytics can be very complex. Um, sometimes they can be relatively simple things, or even just aggregating the data for storage for later batch processing. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different things that, that can live inside of that streaming engine. Often, you will do something with the results of your streaming engine. Very often, you'll publish it back out to the same kind of system you pull it off of. So it's a very common pattern that I see people do is picking up a Kafka topic or a few Kafka topics, doing some processing and writing data back out to a Kafka topic um, to be consumed by another streaming system or to be logged for, for later analysis. Other times you're processing streaming data, but then you're producing sort of batch reports on the back end. Um, you can see that too. And other times you're, you're just actually just directly taking action. So like calling API servers with the results of your stream. So some of the times where you see that is if you have like fraud detection, sometimes there'll be a streaming process and the, the risky things will trigger events for, to trigger a human review. I see. So the first component that you mentioned is this message bus, the aggregator of data from different sources, followed by the streaming engine, and you gave several examples. What comes after this? Is it you can put the data in a, another database and visualize? You can persist it to a database. There are some systems which will directly generate reports. So you can see some things where you'll have like a, a reporting page and your dashboard will just get updated automatically with the latest information coming off of the streams. Uh, you'll see some streaming systems which really just exist to take in a stream and transform it for another streaming system to pick up and do more processing with. Mm -hmm. um, that's especially common in the, in the Kafka place. One example of a streaming engine that you gave was Apache Spark, yeah. which you've worked on a lot. When I was reading about it, I saw that what it does is when it receives the data, it turns it into RDDs, which is the fundamental data structure of Spark. Then with this RDDs, which just means resilient distributed data sets, we can apply a map function to them. What is an example of a function that we can apply and the result that we would get? Sure. I mean, if we think back to our machine learning example, one of the simplest things that we could do in our map function would be to take our model and call predict on each individual element that's coming in. And then we would call map and we would output that element's key and the prediction that came from our machine learning model and, and we could send that downstream. It's important to note that that's one of the streaming APIs that Spark provides. It, it also has a, a SQL-like interface called Spark Structured Streaming, 
which looks more like the infinite SQL table we were talking um, back at the start. And so then you would do things like you could construct a window and you could say like, I want to see the moving average of something because like if our sales like have maybe some intermittent dips or, or gaps, that's okay. But if our moving average like of the last five minutes starts to go down substantially, that's a thing we should pay attention to. I see. So you're saying it's a SQL-like interface where we can do things like also count items and... Totally. And we common things are like counting sales and alerting on like, hey, <laughs> we don't have any sales coming in. Someone should go figure out why. And, and sometimes it's that, you know, the World Cup is on and other times it's that your computers are all broken and someone needs to go do something. Mm -hmm. Is this streaming engine, the fact that it breaks it into RDDs, essentially turning it into batches? Yeah, so when you use Spark's uh, first streaming engine, you get essentially a micro-batch view. And what that does is uh, underneath the hood, if you really want to, you can actually take your batch logic, and if it can understand things, it'll apply to the same APIs, and you can, you can apply that on sort of each individual window that's coming in. Of course, the, the catch there is that because it's being applied per window, if your batch logic assumes that it has a full picture of the world, it won't. It'll only have a picture of that window while it's computing, but it's pretty neat to be able to reuse a lot of your code. And in the structured streaming side, there's two execution engines. One of them is a micro-batch execution engine, um, and the other one is a continuous processing engine. And the continuous processing engine has some limitations right now with what it can do there, and that's probably going to get worked on uh, over the next few releases, um, but it doesn't have to end up as a micro-batch approach. That just tends to be uh, what most people do because um, the, the new continuous engine isn't really... Some would say finished. Um, I would say it's finished for what it does, but you know it doesn't have the full features that most people want to see just yet. Okay. And the continuous processing engine would be to have it more related to the streams versus having to change from the stream paradigm to the batches. Yeah. It would keep it more in real time all the time. That's the goal of the continuous engine. Okay. That being said, I haven't dug enough into the continuous engine yet because it's still pretty early days. And it, I mostly work in the ML and Python support part of Spark. And those ones don't really particularly interface nicely with the continuous stuff. So it hasn't been a place where I've, I've played a lot. But it's really exciting. And I'm looking forward to when it gets to the place that I can start like mm -hmm. plugging it into the parts that I do. And in Spark we can also build a machine learning pipeline, right? Totally. What does the machine learning pipeline consist of? Can you talk a bit about the components of it? Sure. So Spark has, has two machine learning APIs, but we're going to focus on the newer one because um, that one's more fun. And if you're used to scikit-learn pipelines, Spark pipelines will feel pretty familiar. And so your, your pipeline consists of stages. And the stages in your pipeline are all either estimators or transformers. And estimators are things which need to see some data before they can decide what to do about new data. Um, so examples of estimators include things like linear regression, k-nearest neighbors, um, but also things like a string indexer, because it needs to see all of the different strings to assign index values to them. And things like transformers include things like a hashing TF transformer, because that just does a hash, and that's you know deterministic. 
or uh, tokenizers or, or other things like that, which don't require training. And so it's important to note that the estimators will, will actually get turned into transformers when you apply data to them. Um, and so, for example, the, the linear regression thing that we were talking about, when it's fit, uh, what it does is it returns a linear regression model. And the linear regression model is simply a transformer. And uh, a pipeline is a way of putting together all of the different pieces of data preparation and machine learning into one unit of computation, fitting them all, and then getting a result that will be able to be reapplied on new records that come in. So are the estimators essentially the training portion of machine learning? Yeah. So the common ones that you think of would be like machine learning models like linear regression and nearest neighbors, but there are also feature prep stages, which do require training as well. I see. Some parts where you are trying to learn the features or extract the features or something. Yeah. So, for example, there is uh, some feature selector stages inside of Spark. And the feature selector stages need the data to be able to do their feature selection. They're not what you would normally think of as like an ML model, but they do need to be fit as well because it's not deterministic without some training data first. Do the transformers come before the estimators? You can intermix them. Normally, it is, it's pretty common that you would have a lot of transformers first and then some estimators and then maybe a few more transformers. Most pipelines end up looking kind of like data prep, model, maybe some tiny bit of you know, work on the end to turn the result into something usable. But, you know, you can have individual stages that it doesn't necessarily go all transformer, then estimator, then all transformer again. So you will have some intermix. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying, the pipeline consists of data preparation, then the model training and testing and things like that. Then after that, there can be some additional work and then just comes the output. Yeah, so one of the things which is really common is, for example, to encode your labels, right, into the right space. But then once you fit your model, when you're predicting new things, you get back out, like, these things, these encoded labels, not your actual labels. So you normally want a step at the end that takes these encoded labels and puts them back into the actual initial feature, yeah, feature space so that you can understand your results. And so you, you know, you, you end up having... A transformer on the end to do the inverse of an earlier transformer. Yeah, we did a show on intro to machine learning, but for those people that didn't hear it, just to illustrate this, you could have a model that's just classifying a picture cat or not a cat, and it could be a zero and a one, and you're saying the final step would just be converting that zero and the one to... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And your zero or one, you can have a lot more labels, right? If it's just a zero or one, I can remember that, Yeah. if I have like cat, dog, and like Aardvark. Yeah. Uh, probably going to forget what number three is occasionally. Yeah. When we operate at scale, we come across the bottlenecks in our system in terms of performance. In a book you co-authored titled High Performance Spark, Best Practices for Scaling and Optimizing Spark, it says that at a very large scale, performance doesn't necessarily mean running things faster. It can mean being able to run something at all. Why is it that when we operate at big scale, things might not even be able to run at all? Yeah, that's a really good question. And thank you very much for calling out the book. I, as an author, just thank you. Because uh, normally I do that myself and it's totally shameless. It's okay. Uh, so why does this matter? So essentially, 
Uh, there's a bunch of operations inside of Spark which are, for example, totally reasonable. Um, group by key groups together all of the elements with the same key. And with small data sets, that's totally fine. But when we start to get to large data sets, if we write something which depends on having all of the same elements with the same key in memory together, that's just not going to work. We're, we just have too many elements with the same key to fit in memory, right? And at that point, our problem is, I mean, yeah, it would be nice if this ran fast, but the main thing here is we need to get rid of our dependency on this thing, which is going to keep us from being able to succeed at all. I see. And for systems that are processing and analyzing big data, what are some of the other performance issues that we can encounter? Sure. I mean, so that one is is mostly what is classically considered to be key skew as a performance problem. And that is probably, I would say, my number one performance issue that, that I see with, with people. There's other variants of uh, partitioning-related problems, which are not necessarily caused by key skew. But we can have cases where our inputs are not in such a way that we can read them on many different machines at the same time. And so if our inputs aren't structured in a way which is conducive to parallel processing, uh, it can really slow us down quite a lot. So there's other cases where, and this is very common in machine learning, one of the things that we want to do is we want to collect back sort of our measure of good fit. And essentially these synchronization points can also become a point of slowness because we have to wait for the job to finish on all of the workers. And we end up with this point where we might be just waiting on a few stragglers, but we can't move on to the next stage until they all tell us, you know, the measure of fit on their data. There's more things. Mm -hmm. There's metrics are great to have, but it's also really easy to make metrics that overwhelm the system. And this is because keeping track of these metrics is really expensive. And so we can over-instrument our code and actually make that fail just by trying to understand our code, which is which is unfortunate. Memory separation problems are another challenge. Um, and I'm actually really excited about this because so there's this classic problem of essentially a lot of big data systems tend to have a Java-based core, but a lot of numerical processing libraries tend to be written in things like Python or R or Fortran is everywhere. And so we, we tend to need to get our data out of, out of the JVM into a place to do some advanced processing. And doing our memory management in these mixed language systems can be really challenging. And uh, Ryan Blue has a really interesting PR into Spark right now. Uh, we'll see if it gets in, but it proposes a possible improvement to how we manage our memory in between Java and Python. And so that's just top of mind today because I was looking at it this morning, and it would be really great if we solved that problem. Mm -hmm. But that's memory management is a, another really big thing. File I.O. is also, I mean, it's related to the splittable, non-splittable one. Uh, you can see this with some cloud storage services, essentially where if when you're accessing sequential files versus non-sequential files, you get different performance characteristics. Renames are super painful. Mm -hmm. There's the driver synchronization points. There was something else around synchronization points that I wanted to talk about. Oh, right. Okay. And this is very Spark specific. Uh, and I want to be clear, like systems like Dataflow, don't experience this problem because they do more of a whole program analysis. They have different challenges. It's more challenging to do certain types of algorithms when you're doing a whole program analysis. It's doable. It's just different trade-offs. But one of the problems that Spark itself faces, especially in the machine learning space, is Spark 
it uses lazy evaluation, which is really useful. It allows us to essentially take a whole bunch of things that we're asked to do and condense them down into sort of a minimal set of steps. And that's really good because you don't have to do that as a programmer yourself. Problem is when the set of steps starts to get really, really big, keeping track of all of this graph of all the different things you want to do starts to take more time than what you actually are asking us to do. And we don't do really any job of detecting when that's happened. And so it's up to the programmer to notice that essentially the graph has gotten way too big and to tell Spark, hey, the graph is really big. I want you to just write all of these files out to disk and you don't have to keep track of the graph anymore. And that's unfortunate. Oh yeah, multiple passes over the data is another. I'm sorry, I can talk about performance problems for a very long time. We have a few minutes left. Okay, cool. <laughs> so another thing that is uh, also surprising, um, I think, to to a lot of people is multiple passes over the same data. Is that for analytics or why would we be doing multiple passes? Sure. And actually, so I did this myself in a PR that I wrote, I think, earlier this week. And... It's, it's really common that when you're doing some, some processing, you want to take your data and you want to put it in a data structure, which is a good fit for what you're doing. And so what I did this earlier this week is I took a bunch of data and I put it in a hash set and then I grabbed the iterator of the hash set and I returned that because I just wanted to deduplicate my inputs on a per partition basis. But by doing it that way, I essentially copied all of my data into the hash set and then I, I copied it out of the hash set. And I didn't need to do that. And someone on the code review pointed out that actually what I could do is just keep the hash set and just do a filter, directly return the elements as I'm going through if they're not already present in the hash set. And doing that switch around, it means that it's a little faster. We have less essentially data moving around. Other nice thing, so here because we had to keep the hash set, we don't actually get this benefit, but in other parts where you don't need to keep like uh, that much state in between element, if you're not having to build up that sort of inter-element state, you're able to sort of process data until you hit a memory constraint, save everything out and like sort of do garbage collection and then keep going and you don't have to force the data to fully exist at one time inside of the JVM or Python VM as, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of cool. It comes about because it's it's really common to just take your data, turn it into a list or another structure that you're familiar with, right? And it's, it's a very natural thing to do. And it's not that bad, but when you start to get to really, really big scale, like the difference of doing iterator to iterator transformations versus iterator to list to iterator transformations, and essentially removing the ability of Spark to spill to disk is a big difference. I see. Before we finish, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned a couple of practices like over-instrumenting, writing to disk, like reading and processing the data multiple times also. Are there any fundamental best practices that you would recommend to people to look at to avoid performance issues? Is there such a thing as check this and this? So, I mean, the thing which you can do is you can essentially look and see if you're your aggregates tend to probably be some of your more expensive computations. And so spend time investigating how you're doing them and see if there are more efficient ways to express them. There are many different ways to express your aggregations inside of Spark and other systems. And you, you can read the documentation for the system that you're using. You know the Spark ones better than others, 
but that's like probably the best practice is to spend your time thinking about that mostly. Uh, your map tasks tend to not be the most expensive part, but you know that's that's not always true. That's one word of advice. The other word of advice is, I mean, the, the, the standard advice is to like try and reduce the number of shuffles you do. And that's just because shuffles involve a lot of network traffic. And I think that's good advice. But I think the other piece of advice is to think really carefully about your serialization of your data structures and think about all of your serialization boundaries. Because in a lot of systems, I'm not entirely sure how to say her last name. She's was at Berkeley when she did this. I'm not super sure where she is now. Might still be Berkeley. But she did some really interesting research, and it showed a lot of time was being spent in serialization and less time in the network stack for a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting to me because we, we often assume the network is our, is our biggest foe. But networks have, like, they're still bad, and we should avoid shuffles when we can. But we should also spend a lot of time thinking about serialization because it looks like that is actually probably one of our biggest costs. And that's what you mentioned earlier about iterator to iterator is not the same as iterator to list. Is that what you mean? Um, that's not quite serialization, but that is thinking about how many times we're copying our data. Because we don't have to serialize the intermediate list, thankfully. But if you're thinking about that, you'll end up thinking about your serialization as well. Because if you're reducing the number of copies, you'll probably end up reducing the number of serializations as well. Well, Holden, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. I, it was really fun. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out. Thank you.